Welcome to Ebenezer's Podcast, a podcast about hearing, understanding, and applying the Word of God to our lives. My name is Leighton Erickson, and I'm Ebenezer's Lead Pastor. Thanks for joining us today. Please check out our website at ebenezerbaptist.ca to connect with us and learn more about our ministries. I hope you enjoy the message. Welcome here. And for those of you that don't know who I am, my name is Grace Sawatsky and I serve on the pastoral team here at Ebenezer. And I'm grateful to our leadership team that has asked me to share in the teaching this morning. So this is our second Sunday in our Ten Commandments series. These commands were given by God to his covenant people Israel to give them hope, to uh, hope that would, we would be able to live rightly, uh, oriented to God and with others, and so that things would go well with them in the land that he was about to give them. Well, last Sunday, Pastor Layton gave us the background to the giving of these Ten Commandments, as well as uh, an overview of the first command. If you didn't get a chance to listen to that, I would really recommend that you go back and listen to it, because um, it gives the rest of the commands rest on that first one. Uh, that says, I alone am God. Do not have other gods but me. So we'll just do a, a quick review of some of the things that he talked about last Sunday. God had made a relational covenant with the Israelite people through their forefather, Dave, or Abraham, and that covenant was carried through to Abraham's son, Isaac, to Isaac's son, Jacob, and then through Jacob's son, Joseph. And after um, the time of Joseph, the Israelites found themselves in bondage as slaves in Egypt. And the Israelites suffered immense persecution and, and oppression at the hands of the Egyptian taskmasters for literally hundreds of years. And into the story of Israel's history comes a man, Moses. And you can read his full story in Exodus starting at chapter 2, or you can listen to Leighton's Cole notes from last Sunday, and I personally would recommend you do both. Once a uh, day, as Moses was tending his father's sheep, God appeared to him in a burning bush, and God said to Moses that he had seen, uh, been watching the uh, oppression and suffering of his people by the Egyptian taskmasters, and he had heard their cries for deliverance. So he calls Moses to be the one to lead the nation of Israel out of bondage and suffering and into the land that God had promised them. This was going to be a land that was rich in resources, a land flowing in, in milk and honey, the land of Canaan. But first, the Israelites needed to be uh, rescued and freed from the rule of Pharaoh. And God uses numerous uh, dramatic, creative incentives uh, to convince Pharaoh to let the Israelites go. And following a miraculous rescue of epic proportions through the Red Sea, God gathers his covenant people at the foot of Mount Sinai to give them instructions on how to live in this new, renewed relationship with him and with each other. I think it's interesting to note that, that these commands were not given as a prerequisite um, for rescuing them. We see his grace in that he rescued them first and then gave them the commands. Sometimes we hear that, well, the, the Old Testament's just about laws and the New Testament is about grace. And yet here clearly God's grace is at work. 
It wasn't, um, he rescued them and then gave them the Ten Commandments to serve as boundaries of protection for them. And it wasn't enough for God just to rescue his people. He wanted to be in a renewed relationship with them and he wanted them to flourish in their relationship with him and with each other. When we consider the Ten Commandments, Leighton said last Sunday, we cannot separate the law from the heart of God, from the lawgiver, which is, his heart is one of love and protection for us. You know, we understand um, that kind of protection and boundaries that we set for our children, and in my case, for my grandchildren, as I uh, take care of them. Um, Not to stop them from having fun, but to protect them from harm. I have a little one-year-old granddaughter who is just an absolute delight, but she also knows how to set off an excruciating shrill scream (laughs) uh, when I deny her walking off the sidewalk and into the street, or truthfully, when I deny her anything that might lead to her dismemberment or or death. (laughs) I have no idea where she gets that from. (laughs) My parents might have other ideas, I'm not sure but I am confident that she will one day become the meek and um, compliant uh, as her grandmother. (laughs) God's laws were loving and logical limits for Israel's good, and they still are today. You know why? Because they are based on God's character. And Scripture tells us that God does not change. His character is the same that it was in the time of Israel as it is today. Israel's response should have been, thank you, God, for protecting us. And yet too often we read that the people did what was right in their own eyes, and that always led to their detriment. Sadly, many people today also feel that the old moral standards of God, of the Ten Commandments, are useless and they're out of date. And we should be able to make up our own minds about what is right and what is wrong. Our natural sinful response to being told what to do is resistance, isn't it? But a closer look at these commands reveals that they still offer us God's protection and grace. And so after a brief declaration that he alone is God and that they were not to have any other gods, God then goes on to let them know that because he alone is the true God, he gets to say, how he should be worshipped. Which brings us to the second command, make no idols. My sermon title is based on that. It's called Worship God in His Truth, Not Your Own. So let's read Exodus 20, verse 4 to 6. You can follow along in your Bibles, or you can, uh, the words will also be up on the screen. You must not make for yourself an idol of any kind, or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. But I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations of those who love me, and obey my commands. Well, at first glance, the second commandment seems pretty easy to avoid, doesn't it? 
What could be simpler than this? Don't whittle or carve or paint anything uh, for the purpose of worshiping God, and we're good, right? <laughs> well, like the first command, this second commandment is calling us into a deeper relationship with God, one that will press us to examine what it means to worship him in spirit and in his truth to recognize accurate images of who God is from inaccurate images of who he is. God alone, because he is God, can determine what is acceptable worship. And making an image to represent him is out of bounds and for good reason, as we will see. It was given to protect man's heart from wandering away from God's heart. So the first of my three points this morning is this. God forbids the making of an image for the purpose of worshiping him. Again, we read, you must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them. While the first commandment uh, addresses idolatry, the second commandment addresses it in a more specific form. We are not to make images of created things and worship them as God. Well, if you know your scriptures at all, you know that Israel's primary downfall throughout history was idolatry. They continually looked to the worship of the nations around them, and they wanted an invisible or a visible image like they had for their gods. They longed for a God who they could touch and see. They didn't want an invisible God. It made them a laughing stock among the other nations who had uh, elaborate images for their gods. And so continually in scripture, and particularly in First and Second Kings, you hear of the Israelites worshiping God and the gods of the nations around them. And whenever Israel had a godly king, which wasn't very often, God would command the king to tear down the high places of worship, which were the places where all of the, uh, the idols were on display and where the people came to worship their own particular idols. And while uh, the few godly kings of Israel that there were would often lead the people to repentance and to renewed obedience to God, more often than not, God would come back to these kings with this judgment you did not tear down the high places. One of these examples is found in 2 Kings chapter 15, and the king on the throne at that time was King Uzziah. And we are told that while he did what was pleasing in the sight of the Lord, he did not destroy the pagan shrines. And as a result, the people continued to offer sacrifices and burned incense there to the pagan gods. You know, Israel always would identify as Yahweh's covenant people, but they also worshiped the other man-made gods of the nations around them. We don't have that problem, do we? I think the implications go deeper than the physical image that God forbids. God rejects all distortions of his image as hindrances to being rightly worshiped. He prohibits any worship of any version of God that is less than who he is. In order to preserve uh, the reality of his perfections, God made decrees that no human contrived image of him shall be made. 
because any man-made image would only serve to cloud or diminish or um, give an inaccurate um, understanding of who he truly is and what he's like. Because he is infinite and invisible, any uh, visible and finite uh, rendering of him in wood or paint or plaster would only diminish our understanding of his true nature. We are given a front row seat to uh, this kind of diminished uh, view of God, image of God, even before the commandments are set in stone. So shockingly, between God's giving them the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 and the time that, that Moses comes down from Mount Sinai uh, with the uh, commandments engraved on tablets of stone in Exodus 32, Israel has already decided to break that second commandment. We read about it in Exodus, Exodus 32, verse 1 to 6, and follow along as I read. When people saw how long it was taking Moses to come down the mountain, they gathered around Aaron. Come on, they said, make us some gods who can lead us. We don't know what happened to this fellow Moses who brought us here from the land of Egypt. And Aaron said, take the gold rings from the ear of your wives and sons and daughters and bring them to me. All the people took the gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. Then Aaron took the gold, melted it down, and molded it into the shape of a calf. When the people saw it, they exclaimed, Oh, Israel, these are the gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Aaron saw how excited the people were, so he built an altar in front of the calf, and then he announced, Tomorrow will be a festival to the Lord. The people got up early the next morning to sacrifice burnt offerings and peace offerings, and after this they celebrated with feasting and drinking, and they indulged in pagan revelry. Aaron seems to think that the golden calf is a good image of God, not a lesser or even indifferent deity altogether. In fact, he instructs the people to use it to worship Yahweh. Well, God's response when he sees what they have done follows in verses 7 to 9. The Lord told Moses, quick, go down the mountain. Your people whom you've brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. How quickly they have turned away from the way I commanded them to live. They have melted down gold and made a calf, and they have bowed down and sacrificed to it. They are saying, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And then the Lord said, I have seen how stubborn and rebellious these people are. Now leave me alone so my fierce anger can blaze against them. I think this begs the question, why was this calf so offensive to God? I think it was so offensive because the, lie, the calf lies about who God truly is. Let's take a look at the enormity of the lie that the calf tells us. If you see on the chart there, let's compare the two. While the calf was small, the one true God, Yahweh, is immense. The calf is inanimate, but God is spirit. The calf was location-bound, but Yahweh was fully present everywhere. The calf was a created thing, but Yahweh is eternal. The calf was impotent, unknowing, but God is 
omnipotent, all-knowing. The calf is, indestru- is destructible, but the one true God is indestructible. The calf is of minor value, and Yahweh is of infinite value. The calf is blind and deaf and mute, but God sees and hears and speaks. The lie it tells is monstrous. Have you ever wondered why Garen chose the image of a calf instead of some other animal like a lion or a a bird? Well, remember that Israel is is in between spaces, right? Fresh out of Egypt and on their way to the promised land of Canaan. And one of the principal deities of of Egypt was the bull god Apis and the supreme head of the Canaanite gods was the bull god El. You see, bull worship was all the rage in the region. But sadly, it isn't even a raging bull that Aaron fashions. It's a wobbly-kneed calf. When Aaron conceives of a Yahweh of his own imagining, he produces a non-threatening, approachable version of the gods of the surrounding pagans. This image of golden calf is not Yahweh. It is a lie. And it's a particularly subtle kind of lie, but maybe not so uncommon. You see, just as the calf was a hugely diminished view of God, we too can have diminished uh, view of God of our own imaginations. Jen Wilkins, in her book, Ten Words to Live By, says this, Anytime we try to make God more palatable and less threatening, or to make him more accommodating and less thunderous, we produce a graven image. We whittle down his transcendence, we paint over his sovereignty, we chisel away his omnipotence until he is a pet-like version of the terrible pagan God we would never be so foolish as to bow down to. Here's a few examples of how this might happen. Would any of us admit to worship wealth when the Bible speaks so clearly of that dangerous idol? And yet when our finances are tight, we might ask, God, why are you withholding your favor from me? Or when our bank accounts are full, we might think, God is blessing me for being so good. We might wholeheartedly reject the works-based salvation of other uh, religions, but we go ahead and imagine God into a God who is obligated to reward our, uh, our own choices or to demand that our properly worded prayers uh, will be answered exactly as we have commanded him to. Perhaps when our circumstances are hard, we might ask, why, Lord? Why, what did I do to deserve this? How can you allow this to happen to me? And when things are easy, we may think it's because we're being rewarded for being better than others. Another quote from Jen Wilkins' book, it says, perhaps we simply take the God of the Bible and treat him according to our preferences by placing emphasis on one of uh, his more palatable attributes to the neglect or even dismissal of others. We speak incessantly of his love, but we grow silent about his wrath. 
We meditate on his grace, but we avoid contemplation on his justice. Or we trumpet his justice selectively to suit our personal and political agendas. Does that sound familiar in our day? Perhaps even in some churches? These are all golden calves because they are false teachers of who Yahweh is. They reveal to us an image of a false or at best a diminished or incomplete image of who God is. We may be just like Israel, willing to worship an image of God that doesn't come close to showing us who he really is. The truth of who God is is revealed in scripture and in the life of Jesus Christ, who was the perfect image bearer of God. And if we haven't taken the time to really know who God is, we too can be fooled into worshiping golden calves and a diminished God. The worship he commands from us is a worship based on the truth, on his truth. I am the Lord your God. There is none beside me. And I am not a weak, knobby-kneed calf of your own imaginings. God and God alone is permitted to make a graven image of himself. We must not make images of God because we ourselves were created to bear the image of God. And as Leighton so aptly illustrated to the children, because of our sin, we do this in such a diminished, inaccurate way. And only Jesus imaged God perfectly. As we look to Christ imitating him, we begin to see God's image being restored in us. The things that sin diminished will one day be fully restored when God makes all things new. And we reflect him perfectly as we were created to do. The commandments of God are his engraving tools to show us um, how to conform to the image of his son. And that's vastly different from the image, dangerous and false worship that's present today that worships self and follows our own wisdom instead of the one who created us. The second commandment compels us to stop worshiping our own diminished image of God and to be the restored image of God. And we can never be uh, a perfect image of God. Only Jesus was that. But we can be a reflection of God's character as we allow the Holy Spirit to develop in us love and joy and peace and kindness and self-control. And his law becomes increasingly engraved on our hearts and we become the image bearers that he created us to be. Secondly, that was a long first point, wasn't it? <laughs> I promise the second, third are, are not nearly as long. Secondly, God declares his jealousy unapologetically he says, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. I love how he just puts it out there with no need to explain himself. In fact, he writes it in stone. I am a jealous God. Well, it might be a hard characteristic of God for us to wrap our heads around, but we're going to try. There's two kinds of jealousy. The first one is a malicious jealousy, which is an expression uh, of an attitude 
um, like this. I want what you've got, and I hate you because I haven't got it. <laughs> it's an immature resentment that expresses itself in envy and perhaps even in meanness and spite. On the other hand, to quote J.I. Packer, he says, God's jealousy is not a compound of frustration, envy, and spite, as human jealousy uh, so often is. But it appears instead as praiseworthy zeal to preserve something supremely precious. I'll say that last part again. God's jealousy is a praiseworthy zeal to preserve something supremely precious. God's jealousy is aroused when his people worship anyone or anything besides him. And while we might have a hard time wrapping our minds around this attribute of God, because jealousy is such a defect in us as humans, <laughs> um, God does not. And we need to keep in mind that, that uh, we don't set the standard that God does. And while we as humans often show the corrupting side of jealousy, uh, God does not. So what is this precious uh, thing um, that is supremely precious to God? What is that? What is it that arouses his jealousy when that is violated? Exodus 34 verse 14 says, You must worship no other gods, for the Lord, whose very name is Jealous, is a God who is jealous about his relationship with you. God's covenant relationship with his people is exceedingly precious to him. He will not share his relationship with, with you, with anything or anyone else. He's not like the lifeless, impotent, pagan gods of the nations, nor is he the watered-down image of God that man sometimes conceives. You know, we might understand this better in the context of a marriage relationship. God's jealousy is like that fierce zeal that we would have to protect the covenant relationship between us and our spouse. Jealousy rises when unfaithfulness is suspected. And as someone threatens to move between your relationship with your spouse, jealousy rises to defend and protect. God's jealousy is, fervent, is his fervent, passionate protection of what is his, you. He will not transfer his honor to, that is due his name to another. And as we sang earlier, he is the only one worthy of praise and glory of his people. And so for it to go to anything else, to anywhere else, is to steal what is rightfully his. God is a jealous God. And if you've entered into a relationship with God through the work of Jesus Christ, God is jealous for you. Let's just let that sink in a moment. God is jealous for you and your relationship with him. He is jealous for your affection. He's jealous for your affection, Leighton. He's jealous for your affection, Tanea. He's jealous for your affection, Ivan. He's jealous for your affection, Darla. 
He will stand guard against anything coming between you and him. And when it does, as it inevitably will, he immediately allows the Holy Spirit to convict us of our sin so that the relationship can be restored and begin to flourish again because you are his to love and protect. And thirdly, idol worship is contagious with implications for generation after generation. I lay, the sins of the, I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. God not only reveals the parameters of uh, pure worship, he also reveals the consequences of violating his will. And all sin has consequences, including the making and worship of idols. Sin always carries consequences because God's holiness and presence cannot share the same space as our sin. Sin needs to be dealt with before we can enjoy his presence again. I don't believe this verse means that God punishes people directly for the sins of their ancestors, but the implications and the impact of their sin, of worshiping things that of our own creation or diminishing uh, our image of God to suit what we want to tolerate, that impact will be felt to the third and fourth generations. God says false worship is not easily corrected. It may take many generations for people to turn their hearts back to him again. Who you worship and how you worship makes a difference not only for today but for generations to come. It can be a slow whittling down of God's image, but its impact is devastating to our faith and the faith of the generations that follow us. This whittling down of God's image may sound like this. The commands of God were for an ancient time. They don't apply to us now. Or I can accept a God of love, but not a, not a God of wrath. I don't like what God says is sin, so I'll just ignore those parts of the Bible. The Bible's just a collection of thoughts by ancient uh, writers who just wrote their best impressions of who God is. So the Bible isn't our first and final authority. Now please hear this. I, I'm not talking about honest questions or expressing honest doubts in our effort to understand God. There should always be space and compassion um, for those. But the trend today, even within the church, is to reject what God says simply because we don't understand it, or we don't want to take the time to do so, or it doesn't fit into how we want to live, or our social and political views. We want Yahweh in some form, yes, but we also want to fit in with the beliefs of the world around us, just like Israel. The results of this kind of thinking opens the door to creating a diminished or even a neutered version of the God we read about in Scripture. And God will not tolerate his image to be anything less than who he says he is. Whether handmade or imagined, God demands a worship based on who he truly is as revealed in Scripture. He deserves no less. He has loved and redeemed us from slavery to sin just as surely as he did Israel. And thankfully, our passage doesn't end there. 
It says, but I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. That is a sure hope that we can take to the bank. So just to wrap up, what does the second commandment of Yahweh mean for us today? Well, first of all, it reveals who God is. God is who he says he is. And he can't be contained or explained in, in uh, an image of our own making or thinking. And he will not accept any worship that tries to diminish him in any way from his truth. Secondly, he is a jealous God who is passionate for his relationship with us. Thirdly, he rewards obedience with unfailing love. The second commandment also reveals something about us. We are a rebellious and fickle people. We want God and we want to worship what the world worships. And even though we have been redeemed from slavery to sin, our bend is always to resist his protection. And thirdly, if we resist his loving, logical laws, we will try to reduce God to what we can understand or feel or what makes sense to us, or even to an image of God that allows us to be accepted by the world around us. The second command gives us instruction. It says, worship God for his truth, not ours. Do not reduce God to what we can see, feel, or comprehend. He is the infinite, all-knowing, uncreated, eternal God who cannot be reduced to our own creation or imaginings. Rather, um, allow uh, him to make us into uh, the image of his son. Secondly, it tells us to protect our relationship with God and the future generations by obeying his commands. And finally, it offers us a promise. Our obedience will be rewarded with God's unfailing love to a thousand generations. You know, the law will either be your demise or your delight. But if you keep God's commands, you will echo the words of Psalm 40, verse 8, that said, I take joy in doing your will, my God, for your instructions are written on my heart. The moral standards of God are always best, both for us as individuals and for our society. The reason being that he created us, he knows us, and he knows what's best for us. Let's be careful that we aren't misled by, by um, those who would deny God's standards because his ways are always best. I pray this summer that we will come to delight in them, to see their beauty, to see their relevance today and to be encouraged by them. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. It is so important to us as your people to be aware that what the scriptures teach about your very character. We repent for trying to make you into someone or something that is less than who you are. You alone are God. There is no equal. And you alone deserve our praise and you deserve a worship that's based on who you truly are. We pray that you would take these truths and impress them deeply in our hearts, that we would be conformed to the image of your Son, 
Let us be a generation that holds fast to your truth. Amen. Well, thank you for listening. Don't forget to check out our church website at ebenezerbaptist.ca. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can let us know by clicking like and by subscribing to our podcast channel. God bless you and thanks for listening.